Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 15 of the Equip Project podcast. Jim, it's great to be sitting alongside you uh, as we endure the storm of the century. How are you holding up? Well, I, my road was flooded yesterday. I didn't get out to church yesterday morning uh, because the road uh, was flooded. But did the bins survive? That's the big question <laughs> on everyone's mind. They are safe in my garage. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, Jim, we're going to be addressing the question, is God a moral monster? That is quite a strongly worded question. But I think there's grounds for that because a lot of people um, would set the God of the Old Testament, the God presented in the Old Testament against the God presented in the New Testament. And they would say that the God of the Old Testament is very much about uh, justice and anger and wrath. And the God of the New Testament is a lot more loving and kind and compassionate. And to demonstrate that point, I'm going to quote uh, just a couple of verses, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. So, so the first is from the New Testament, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now let's look at a few verses from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And it says, In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jesubites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, in our first three episodes, Jim, we talked a lot about the Christian scriptures and how they're inspired. We talked about how they're inspired. We talked about how we have this canon of 66 books and so on. But as I mentioned, one of the biggest issues that young people tend to raise is highlighted by these two passages. And the question really is, how can we answer critics who say that the the Old Testament portrays God as this angry, um, vengeful God, and the New Testament portrays God so differently as a God who's all about love and kindness and compassion. How can the same God be so different in the Old Testament and the New Testament? How can we defend the Old Testament, essentially? Yes, uh, the new atheists are very um, keen to make this point. So Christopher Hitchens comments on the Old Testament um, this way. He says, It contains a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. And then Richard Dawkins is even more disparaging. He says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, malevolent bully. Now, Dawkins does love his adjectives. Uh, And yet, for those of us who do believe in Judeo-Christian values, there are many parts of the Old Testament that disturb us. Now, if we're going to defend the Bible as God's word, then we need to be convinced that God himself is coherent. And by that I mean that God isn't sort of schizophrenic, or that he doesn't suffer from multiple personality disorders. I have met more than one young Christian who's had the courage to admit that they cannot square that circle. They think that God's character seems downright incoherent. And so they just avoid many parts of the Old Testament out of embarrassment. So I guess the big challenge in this conversation is going to be to persuade people that God's character is in fact coherent. 
But before we go any further, Jim, would you mind just unpacking that idea of coherence for us? Okay. Well, I'm going to give a silly illustration. All your, my... your illustrations are never silly. <laughs> well, this one is going to be. So imagine that after a wild, uh, wild night's drinking, I should say, by the way, that I, I do practice abstinence, but imagine that after a wild night's drinking, uh, I fall down a flight of stairs and I wake up with a bruised head and a compound fracture in my right leg. Okay? And you tell me that an ambulance is on its way to take me to hospital. Now, the blow to my head has caused amnesia. So I ask you, well, what is a hospital? It's a place full of lovely people who will fix your broken leg. Don't worry, they will take really good care of you. So the next day you come to visit me in hospital and I say, this is an amazing place. An attractive young nurse smooths my pillows every few hours. They bring me food. And a jovial doctor has said that he will fix my leg tomorrow. Okay. Then a few days later, you return and you find me in a very different mood. I say, this place is evil. That jovial doctor I was telling you about, he wheeled me into a terrible place called an operating theatre. Then he cut open my leg, my injured leg, with a sharp knife and attacked my broken tibia with an electric drill. The man is a sadistic butcher. But at least that nice nurse has been kind to me. So, some weeks later, you return to my bedside bearing a box of exorbitantly expensive grapes from Marks and Spencer's. Uh, I said, everyone in here is mad. That nice nurse I was telling you about? Well, yesterday, she forced me to do this thing called physiotherapy. And do you know what physiotherapy is? It's a big, long word that means torture. I'm pretty sure tomorrow the chaplain will introduce me to waterboarding. What sort of people work in this hospital? One day they're nice and caring, and the next they're sadistic monsters. Now, how would you go about explaining to me that medics do not, in fact, have multiple personalities? Some of them do, but that's the side. <laughs> well, here's the thing. There's a couple of unhelpful approaches you could take, and then there's the right way. So would you say that the jovial doctor just had a really bad day, but that in recent weeks he has been really very nice? Or would you say, I know that taking an electric drill to another person's leg might seem harsh, but because the jovial doctor did it, then we just have to accept that it was the right thing to do. He is the doctor, after all, and it would be wrong to question him. It seems to me that neither of these arguments will do. And yet often Christians make these arguments in order to defend God's character. So someone might say, I know that the God of the Old Testament was very harsh. There was lots of fire raining down, but he's really changed now. You know, nowadays he's, he's really nice and really caring. In fact, he's really mellowed. There are so many things wrong with that argument, I hardly know where to start. So I'm just going to confine myself to one observation. The idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice and the God of the New Testament is a God of love, that idea can only be held by people who have read neither the Old nor the New Testaments. The Old Testament is full of God's grace and love, and the New Testament is full of God's justice. The second attempt at a defense is to say that we just accept whatever the doctor does without question. That is, God is sovereign, we're told, and so whatever happens, well, it just must be right. Well, it may be acceptable for a Muslim to say fatalistically, it is the will of Allah. But the God of the Bible makes decisions in the light of his revealed character, his essential character. The divine character shines like the sun. His mercy and justice and holiness, if you like, they're like translucent qualities. God could never do anything that is arbitrary or unjust. And so it's outrageous to advance the idea that we cannot question his decisions when they appear to us to be arbitrary and unjust. Now, of course, we, we see through a glass darkly, to quote the Apostle Paul. There are some things we will not fully understand this side of eternity. But we should take the path of Job 
who struggled precisely because he took God's revealed character seriously. So imagine once more you were standing by my hospital bed, trying to defend the characters of the surgeon and the physiotherapist. The correct defence would be to explain the overall process by which a badly broken leg gets fixed. If all they did was smooth pillows and bring trays of food, then the leg would become gangrenous and I would die a horrible death. My drunken fall caused real damage, and in the real world, things only get fixed through a process that might include difficult moments. Okay, let's try and apply that thinking to the Israelite community we read about in the early books of the Old Testament. Okay. So God's people lived in the Near East in the late Bronze Age. The surrounding cultures took things like slavery and harsh punishments for granted. These injustices were ingrained within every culture of that period. Now, if the story of God's salvation was a fairy story, then I suppose we could read of God uh, waving a magic wand, uh, transporting his people somewhere over the rainbow where uh, happy little bluebirds fly and troubles melt like lemon drops. But in the real world, God begins a long process. With divine patience, God takes a group of weak, illiterate ex-slaves and transforms them into a well-ordered society. He introduces a proper judicial system with maximum penalties and compensation arrangements. Actually, I'd probably better explain what I mean by compensation arrangements. You've probably heard that there were lots of crimes in the Old Testament that attracted the death penalty. Now, that is true. But in every case, apart from one type of crime, the death penalty could be commuted to a large financial penalty, which was paid off through the servitude system. The only time the death penalty had to be enacted was in the case of premeditated first-degree murder. So we're often told that homosexuality or adultery automatically triggered a death sentence, but that's not true based on what you're saying. No, it's not. Of the 14 crimes that attracted the death penalty, only premeditated murder couldn't be commuted. And the large fine imposed would almost certainly require the guilty party to enter into servitude for a period of time to make the money to pay off their debt to society. Let's talk for a moment about the system of servanthood in the Old Testament because this is often compared to uh, the harsh slavery that operated in colonial times. But it's not uh, the same as that, is it, Jim? Uh, The Old Testament system had nothing in common with that system, uh, the horrors that were experienced by black people during these modern colonial times. That's right. In addition to providing safeguards, God educates the Israelites about what a godly society should look like. I mean, I mentioned the ancient book of Job a few minutes ago, and, and just listen to Job speak. Uh, about his servants. I have it here in front of me. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the world make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? That's an astonishing thought that such an enlightened view of equality could come from such an ancient text. I mean, the Greeks regarded slaves as farm implements that could speak. But the words that I've just read from Job, you you might have expected Abraham Lincoln to have said them. Yeah, those words sound remarkably enlightened. Um, And even in today's society, people would be quite impressed um, with that level of, of insight. The legal system we find in the Old Testament is particularly interesting. Near Eastern scholars are fond of citing the so-called Code of Hammurabi, um, as an example of enlightened thinking during that period. If you've, if you've ever visited the Louvre in Paris, then you will see this ancient Egyptian document exhibited there. 
but the legal system laid down in the early books of the Bible surpasses anything found in the Code of Hammurabi. It's full of mutilations, cutting off noses and breasts and hands and horrible punishments, like being dragged round a field by cattle. But I mention this because the Code hands out different punishments for the same crime, depending on the social class of the perpetrator. Aristocrats get off lightly under Hammurabi, but in the Hebrew law, we see a primitive people being educated about equality and fairness and the sanctity of human life. I think that's amazing. It is. I'm just in the middle of a book by a philosopher, an atheist philosopher called Luke Ferry, and he makes the point that it is Christianity which brings into human uh, history this notion of the equality of all human beings. But in actual fact, he's wrong. It's not Christianity. It was Hebrew culture which brought it in. But anyway, if one of the new atheists was listening to us now, he would accuse us of avoiding the elephant in the room. He might say, I buy your arguments about this long process, slowly introducing an enlightened legal system, but giving protection for servants. But what about the ethnic cleansing commanded by God in the Old Testament? How can you have a coherent view of God when I can point to verses where God commands his pet children to kill every man, woman and child in the land they're invading? The issue raised here is the military campaign led by Joshua during the period of Israel's history when they entered the promised land, the land of Canaan. The Old Testament is full of war, but with this one exception, all Israel's wars were actually defensive. So the new atheists always focus on the one exception, and I think that's important to note at the outset. And then they deploy phrases like genocide and ethnic cleansing when they talk about the military campaigns recorded in the book of Joshua. So Jim, let's take, uh, let's tackle the issue head on by reading the text of Joshua chapter 10, starting at verse 40, and it reads, So Joshua subdued the whole region. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Well, that sounds grim, doesn't it? But the first lesson to be drawn from this reading is that it is very bad policy to rip verses out of their context in the overall plotline. So I'm going to ask you to contrast what you've just read with these verses from the first chapter of the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor or Ablaim or Megiddo and the surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Judges says explicitly that Israel never drove the Canaanites out completely. So, for example, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them, and so on. Now, I could have read a score of other parts of the Old Testament which make it clear that the Canaanites were not all killed. So was Joshua lying? No. Scholars now think he was using stock phrases stock phrases, military phrases of that historical period. So just as modern-day generals will talk about carpet bombing or bombing regions back to the Stone Age, so their ancient counterparts had their own stock phrases to indicate total military domination. Some critics might concede that point, but they might say that Joshua simply failed to implement God's planned genocide. They will often quote the commandment given way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which says, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. 
But the very next verse says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. He said, This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. So that's what they were to do. And recent discoveries by archaeologists have shed new light on on this problem. In the book of Joshua, only a handful of towns are explicitly marked for total destruction, Jericho and Ai being the most famous. And the archaeological evidence points to these towns being military fortresses. Now here's the thing about Bronze Age military forces. The government buildings were inside the fortified walls, protected by a military garrison. But the townspeople lived outside in the surrounding countryside. They simply didn't have the civil engineering to build walls right round what we would now call a city. And that model fits in very well with everything we read in the Old Testament. Seven times we encounter the order to kill men, women and children. But as I said, reputable scholars now contend that this was another stock military phrase because the fortified citadels would only have contained military personnel and a small number of women uh, who who, who tend to follow the, the drum. Now, if you put all that evidence together, a very different picture emerges from the genocidal one painted by Richard Dawkins. Yes, there was a ruthless campaign against the fortified cities like Jericho and Ai. There was an even more merciless attack on the religious system of the Canaanites. It was to be smashed. But the experience of much of the ordinary population could best be described as a refugee problem very much like what happened in Syria recently uh, in our own lifetimes. Large numbers of displaced townspeople and villagers fleeing from Joshua's armies. Now, of course, we're still left with a record of violence, which is hard not to think of as ugly and disturbing. And I know myself, as as I read through some of those accounts, I do struggle to reconcile them with a loving God because we do see the deaths of some women and children um, and we're left asking that question, how could a loving God command his people to do such terrible things? Well, it might be helpful to revert to my silly illustration. The process of healing my broken leg required a moment of terrible surgery. If you looked at it in isolation, that moment made no sense. But when viewed in the context of the overall healing process, then it did make sense. Similarly, when the one-time event of the Canaanite campaign is viewed in isolation, it is inexplicable. But perhaps it makes sense when we see it in the context of the overall story of God's salvation. So let's use Joshua's wars as a case study to defend the character of God. Okay? So I'm going to make two points here. And the first is that God's interventions in history are always based on fairness. The Canaanite society was not an innocent thing that simply got in God's way. God had waited patiently for hundreds of years for Canaanite society to repent of its evil ways. This may surprise you, but it is widely accepted that the Canaanites were horrifically evil. I'm not simply referring to social oppression or sexual perversion that couldn't be described uh, on a podcast. Canaanite society was a cult of death. Children were burned alive, sacrificed to the god Baal. Violence was literally worshipped. I'm going to quote you a piece of ancient literature about Baal's consort. Uh, She's a goddess called Anath. And the Canaanite literature describes her like this. The blood was so deep that she waded in it up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads, 
Above her, human hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads. I'm going to drop the next bit. It's too gross. Her joy at her butchery made her liver swell with laughter, her heart full of joy. <laughs> Way back in Genesis 15, God explained that Israel would not get the promised land for centuries because, he says, the sin of the, Amal- of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. But now, after those centuries of patient endurance, God is bringing divine judgment down on a society that had passed the point of no return. That definitely is, is messed up. Um, that they were worshipping gods like that. I think once you put the the judgments of God in context, it really challenges the argument or the idea that Israel was God's spoiled pet child who walked into the homes of an innocent people. In fact, Israel happened to be God's instrument of divine justice at that time. And we're told explicitly in Deuteronomy in chapter 9, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, Do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. That's right. In many ways, the Canaanite campaign is just one example of how God uses the terrible thing we call war. God abhors war, but he is a realist. So in a fallen world, where war is an inevitable consequence of man's sinfulness, God can sometimes use war to destroy a regime that, if left unchecked, would destroy the rest of humanity. See, it's easy for an armchair critic to say that God should never use war in this way. But someone like that should stand at the entrance to Auschwitz or Belsen and ask themselves if the Third Reich should have been allowed to flourish unchecked. So God's not being unfair here. The rest of the Old Testament rebuts the charge of favoritism, the spoiled child thing you were talking about. If you read the later books, you'll see that God uses nations like Assyria and Babylon to punish Israel's idolatry. The words God uses to his own people are exactly the same as those used during Joshua's campaign. Later on in their history, he uses Israel's enemies to destroy, scatter and drive out. So it is a simple fact that far more generations of Israelites felt the judgment of God than generations of Canaanites. So that was the first thing. God always acts fairly. The second lesson we learn from looking at the Canaanite campaign in its overall context is that God was intervening to save all nations, not just Israel. The whole point of Israel was to create a vehicle of blessing for every nation, including the Canaanites. So the later prophets could look forward to a time when the Jebusites, one of the Canaanite people groups, could be regarded as a clan of Israel. So Joshua's war was not an aberration on God's part. It was a one-off act of judgment, and it's never portrayed in the Old Testament as some sort of jihad. Okay, It was a one-time painful moment of surgery that paved the way for the redemption of all nations, including future generation of Canaanites. So based on what you've been saying, Jim, we can conclude that God's character is not incoherent. In fact, divine love and divine justice work together throughout a long historical process, one that keeps the lid on man's rebellion while allowing his great plan of redemption to be worked out. And ultimately, that would be of tremendous benefit and blessing to all mankind. There's a beautiful moment when a Canaanite woman comes to the feet of the Lord Jesus uh, to receive uh, salvation. And it's at that point you see Um, 
the overall process of salvation uh, in its context. Now, it is important, just as we close, Ollie, to say we've only uh, done a bit of, of, of our work here. All we've done in this conversation is defend the coherence of God's character. But in my experience, many young adults ignore the Old Testament because it just seems slightly weird or culturally remote to them. You know, what is all that stuff in Leviticus about? So we're going to have to have another conversation at some point in the future about the profitability of the Old Testament. Why does it matter to us? Uh, But I'm about to die from hypothermia here, so let's bring this thing to a a merciful end. Brilliant, Jim. I look forward to those discussions in future episodes. Thank you all for listening to episode 15 of the Equip Project podcast. I've really enjoyed the discussion Jim and I have had in this episode, and I'm sure it's raised questions for you guys. We'd love to hear those questions. Please do contact us at theequipproject at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram. We greatly appreciate your support and encouragement and we look forward to continuing this journey with you next week.